If you'll open your Bible to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 5 today. Last week, we began in our Sunday morning services a study on the gospel of Luke. There's many things going on in the life of our church community, many things just to be really encouraged about and engaged with. Uh, But one thing we're doing on Sunday mornings when we come together as a part of our worship service is we're going to go through the gospel of Luke here in 2018. 18. And I want to share with you three reasons why I believe this is important for you, your friends, your family, important for our church community to go through Luke uh, this year. Number one, it's a new year, new you, right? We've got new plans, new rhythms, new, new dreams, new jobs. I know there's a number of new jobs or you might be visiting day, you're in a new city, right? New relationships, new hopes, new things that we're shooting for, new habits we're trying to adopt. And with all these new things, you know, it can be tempting to just kind of focus on our future and just get kind of wrapped up in our world of, hey, what's coming for me this year? Or we can get focused on our failures. We look back at 2017 and we're like, oh my goodness, I blew it so badly. And we can just get locked down there. Or we can focus on our features, you know, look at me, look what I'm doing, look where I'm going in life, look what classes I'm taking this semester and kind of become a prideful jerk. You know, we, could, we can get caught up in our flaws, right? Oh man, there's no way I could do this because of this issue in my life or this way that I do that or I always make the biggest idiot of myself. Here we can just spin in that or fear. Man, fear's around every corner. Like what's gonna happen this year? What if this doesn't work out? Will I be ready for this? All of those things can just spin and churn and eat us alive. What Jesus gives us the opportunity to do is to fix our eyes on him. And when we do that, what do we find? We find wisdom and strength for the race in front of us. We find hope and grace. We find salvation, redemption, repentance. We find rich relationship with God and the opportunity to have rich relationships with one another if we'll fix our eyes on him. So as we start this year, I don't know of a better thing for you, for your friends, for your family, for us as a church, and to say, hey, we're gonna just kind of build this rhythm into our life. When we come together on Sunday morning, we're gonna focus on Jesus. And the gospel of Luke is the biography of Jesus. We read about his birth. We read about his life, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his death, and his resurrection. So every week, it's going to be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus on display. It's a great place to fix your eyes and to fix your attention this year. Second reason, what we see as a church is that one of our core values is that found people find people. That just as Jesus has found us in the gospel and adopted us into God's forever family, that that love and that grace and that relationship and that forgiveness is not just for kind of a closed off community here at 635 and LBJ, but that there's a call of God on your life and mine to be a part of helping other people come to know him, come to experience his love and his grace, come to be a part of the family of God. And so as you're loving your neighbor, as you're loving your classmates, as you're loving your fraternity brothers, your sorority sisters, your teammates, your coworkers, your family members, as you're kind of demonstrating the gospel with your lives, what I want you to know are these Sunday mornings are a resource for you that you can invite the people that you're 
sharing your faith with, that you're loving in the name of Jesus, you can invite them and you can know they're gonna get a great kids ministry if they have kids, a really rich worship time, and then each week kind of a focus in on who Jesus is and why he matters to us, why he would matter to your friend or to your family member or to your coworker or your classmate. So it's a resource for you. Third reason why we want to pursue this is if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you've been out of church a long time. In 2018, the resolution is I wanna get back in church. I wanna raise my kids in church. I wanna turn over a new leaf of some sort, right? And you're here. We're so glad that you're here, right? Or you're here and you're not a Christian and you're seeking. You're searching. You're saying, 2018, I'm gonna figure out what I believe about God. Well, man, Gospel of Luke is a great place for you to enter into. Again, every week, you're not gonna get rumors about Jesus. You're gonna get Jesus up close and personal. You get to learn about him. And so I think this is three great reasons for all of us to enter into this journey through the Gospel of Luke together. As with any journey, and foundations are important. So we see in the first couple chapters of Luke that he is laying the foundations for us to really enter into the story, really understand who Jesus is. Last week, he opened up and he let us know that this book is an eyewitness account, that it's history. And we looked at last week, why might we in 2018 believe that? We saw where does, the gospel, where does this gospel come from? Where does the Bible come from in general? And why you as a rational, intelligent, thinking person have solid evidence to believe that it's an actual, historical, uh, reliable account of who Jesus is and what he did, right? So we saw that last week. This week, we're gonna kind of lay another foundational piece. If you'll turn in your Bible to Luke chapter one, starting in verse five, we read the story kind of opens up a little bit and it says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So what's happened here, right? The story's opening up. You got a couple. You got Zechariah. His job is a priest. You got his wife, Elizabeth, and that's who they are, and they're married. And in verse six, it begins to describe them. It says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So we get to learn a little bit about this couple that's important to the start of our story, right? They're righteous people. They have a deep relationship with God. They're people of faith. They're trying to live in a way that honors God. But you learn that they've been through some hard things, that they have dealt with infertility. Some of you might be dealing with infertility now or have a family member or friend that that's what they've gone through, and you know how painful that is. Well, that's their story. That's one of the marks on their relationship. And the biological clock for them has ticked out, right? Elizabeth is not only barren, but now she's advanced in years, meaning this hope that they had of having a child is impossible, right? That's what we see about them. In verse 8, it begins to describe this kind of uh, divine intervention in their life. It says, now, while he, being Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So Zechariah is showing up to work. 
He's doing his priestly work, and it's his turn to go into the temple to burn the incense as a part of their worship service. And in verse 10, it says, And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now note this in verse 11. And there appeared to him, there appeared to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So now when we read that, I don't want you to just kind of breeze over that. This guy's at church praying, and an angel appears to him. That's fairly remarkable, right? That's fairly like, whoa, that should grab our attention. In verse 12, we see not only does the angel appear to him, but it says Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, so pause there, not only does an angel show up, but an angel begins to speak to Zechariah. That's the foundation of our story. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Again, another remarkable thing. Now we're hearing about answered prayer, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, these prayers, what we see is it wasn't just a prayer for a good parking spot that day or that his team would win in the football playoffs that weekend, but no, this deep thing that had been marking his life with his wife that they had carried for many years and obviously had been something they had prayed about for many years, that she was going to bear a child. What that means is supernaturally, what was biologically impossible is now going to be possible. So let's pause there, right? So we've seen an angel showing up, an angel speaking, supernatural answers to prayer that involve divine healing and someone conceiving uh, the womb being opened. It's remarkable. And if you're new to this story, this isn't gonna be the only place where we run into things that for us in 2017 seem like, wait, I don't even know what I think about that, right? As we go through the story, we're gonna see uh, miracles happening. We're gonna see people being supernaturally healed as others pray for them. We're gonna see people with, with possessed by demons, demonic deliverance cast out, like not just a movie exorcist, but we're gonna read about that as a plot line in the story. We're gonna see other miracles happen. We're gonna see Jesus himself, Luke is gonna tell us, uh, is, is raised from the dead, like dies, and then comes back to life, and that Jesus is God. I mean, this book is filled, this biography is filled with miraculous accounts surrounding the life of Jesus. So what do we do, what do you and I do here some 2,000 years later with that? We're scientific people. We're like, how does faith and science, like, do they conflict? Do they intersect? Like, what do you do with those? This has been a tension that many struggle with, and I imagine many in our church struggle with. It's kind of captured, this wrestle between faith and science is captured in an iconic scene from the movie Nacho Libre, and I'm going to share that with you just to set the stage. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? 
I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's cave man. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... <laughs> All right, so the, the movie scene captures a struggle for many of us, just this wrestle. Jack Black is the religious guy, and his buddy is, you know, I, I only believe in science and kind of this tension. And Jack Black's trying to, you know, uh, baptize his buddy. And um, It's not just in the movies, though. The Barna Group, which is a research group, studied Americans who grew up in church between the ages of 18 and 29, and subsequently dropped out of church and potentially even dropped out of Christianity altogether. And they studied what were the reasons for these dropouts? Like, why did they disengage with church and in many cases disengage with Christianity altogether? 29% of the respondents said that churches are out of step with the scientific world we live in. So for about 30% of the dropouts, it was like the church just doesn't seem in touch with our world today, like our scientific world, just seems kind of way out of touch in another world. 25% describe their reason as Christianity being anti-science, not just not being in touch, being, being antagonistic to science. Another 20% said Christianity is anti-intellectual. So not just science, but any kind of mental pursuit, the life of the mind, that Christianity is against that, right? And it's not just people who grew up in church who disengage, but many around the world have these same questions. I wanna to read to you a, a statement by a professor at Hull University. Mark Lorch is a biochemistry professor, and he's talking about his own experience with Christianity and with faith. And he said this, I had a brief flirtation with Christianity in my teens, probably as a form of rebellion against my nuclear physicist father. But ultimately, I could never reconcile what I saw as a contradiction between the principles of the scientific method and a faith in a supernatural God. And ever since then, it's puzzled me how anyone could be religious while also being a scientist. How could one hold what I saw as diametrically opposed belief systems? So what's Lord saying? He's saying, you know, I looked into Christianity, but ultimately as a scientist, I just don't see how you could have faith in Christianity and also be a scientist. Like they just seem like two different worlds, right? For others though, it's not as kind of neutral. Like you, you know, you're just a religion guy and I just believe in science. It's more antagonistic. It's more oppositional. Edward O. Wilson is a world-renowned evolutionary biologist. And this is how he described the conflict between religion and science. He said this, the final decisive edge enjoyed by scientific naturalism will come from its capacity to explain traditional religion, its chief competition as a holy material phenomenon. Theology is not likely to survive as an independent intellectual discipline. So what's he saying? He's saying, hey, it's not just that there are two different kinds of people, some choose faith, some choose science, but it's actually science and faith are antagonistic. And ultimately, science is going to destroy its chief competition, faith. It's going to wipe it out. It's going to wipe out religion, right? He sees the two not as separate worlds, but as antagonistic and ultimately science destroying religion. 
Now, I bet you might have had one of these type of questions. I remember on my first overseas mission trip, randomly enough, I ran into a guy who had graduated from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And we were about the same age, and, and I was trying to share with him about Jesus, and we were hanging out, and he was listening pretty receptively, and then we ran into kind of a, a big objection for him. He said, Zach, okay, I understand what you're saying, but what about evolution? It makes me want to believe we're just all from monkeys, that there's no God, and that none of this stuff has any bearing on real life. What would you have said? I mean, that's the question he asked. Maybe you've had that thought as well. So what do we do with these things as we begin to study through Luke? What I hope to do today is to share with you some information that I think is really pertinent for helping all of us understand how science and faith uh, intersect or how they, how they conflict or what that's like. But I just want to say in our short time together, there's no way that I'll be able to do full justice to the complexity uh, of this conversation. And if these are questions for you, it's like, hey, it's not just kind of interesting, but this is my deal. Like, I, I really have these questions, or I'm really passionate about these things. There are a number of scientists in our church who would love to pull out their Bunsen burners and their little beakers and microscopes, and you guys can hang out in the lab and talk about faith and science. And so if that's you, just let me know after the service, and I can connect you with people that would love to kind of talk more in depth uh, about these matters. So let's start with the first kind of what I'll put out there as a myth, and that's this, that Christianity is anti-science, and it's a, it is diametrically opposed as a belief system. That's myth number one. Well, isn't Christianity anti-science? Aren't they just diametrically opposite of each other? To really speak into this question and for all of us to really understand kind of uh, this seeming conflict, we have to look at when did science develop? When did scientific thought, when did scientific inquiry, who were the kind of the first people that began to adopt science as a discipline, a pursuit in life? Right? When did it emerge in human history? Edward Grant is a leading uh, historian of science. He taught at Harvard University and Indiana University. And in his studies on this question, when did science develop? Here's what he found. He said, it's indisputable that modern science emerged in the 17th century in Western Europe and nowhere else. So what's he saying? He's saying studying the world, studying human history, studying all different cultures, studying Asian culture and and Arab culture and, and all these different types of culture, what we see is that scientific thought, scientific, uh, the discipline of science emerged in Western Europe as a geographical location, and in the, in the 17th century, so the 1600s, in a time period, and nowhere else. Now, this is not to say that science didn't grow elsewhere, that it didn't spread, and there's been many scientific innovations all around the world, sure, but he's talking about the origin, the beginning, the birthplace of what you and I would call science. So question then is, why? Why in Western Europe, why in the 1600s was that the place where science kind of developed? Did they have access to to pertinent natural resources that just made them strong as scientists? 
Uh, did they have a conflict or maybe a disease epidemic that just, they started a kind of messing around to try and, try and solve a problem and they became scientific? Like why there did they, was it the birthplace of science? Sociologist Harvey, uh, Rodney Stark writes on this topic and he said the reason why is that in Western Europe, in the 1600s, they were shaped by a biblical worldview. And it was this biblical, Christian biblical worldview that gave birth to the idea of science. Let me read you what he said. He said, Christianity depicted God as a rational, responsive, dependable, and omnipotent being, and the universe as his personal creation. Thus, having a rational, lawful, stable structure awaiting human comprehension. So what he's saying is this, in the marketplace of ideas in human history, when you look through all the different ideas and worldviews that people have had throughout the years, that it was the worldview of Christianity, that the universe was created by a personal creator God who created the world, created mankind and everything in it. And that God was a rational being. He was faithful and consistent. And as he was faithful and consistent, he set the universe up to operate off faithful, consistent principles. That as he was a lawgiver, as the Bible teaches, that he set up laws and systems, order to the universe that could be known and could be understood. It's this that sociologists and historians tell us was the worldview that gave people the belief that science could be possible, that the universe could be explored, could be understood, operated off of principles that could be found out. That's significant. The great pioneers of science, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and so on, they were all believers in Christ. They were all formed by this view. When you read in the Bible scriptures like Genesis 8, 22, it says this, God speaking, while the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, and they shall not cease. What, what, what's God saying? That the world is set up in seasons. There's a time to sow and there's a time to reap. That that's ordered, right? That there's cold, that there's a cold and heat. That the world operates on seasons, that days have an order about them. That there's light and there's darkness, right? There's day and there's night. That these things shall not cease. Scriptures like these began to form the minds, these Western Europeans, of the order that the world ran on, that it wasn't up to the whims of all these mysterious forces, but there was rhythm and order. There was laws that the universe operated on. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So these people would read, and they would see Wow, the Bible says that the heavens, the skies declare the glory of God. That I can look around creation and I can see the handiwork of God, that God is revealed in nature. In Romans 1, it says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Look at verse 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived Ever since the creation of the world, how have they been perceived? In the things that have been made. 
that God and his nature could be seen and appreciated and known through creation. That as people journeyed in to explore the human body, plants, animals, the way the world works, that they would better understand and better see the glory of God. And it was these ideas that gave birth to what you and I would call scientific exploration and scientific inquiry. So far from the idea that depending on where you grew up and maybe the church you grew up in, they would say, well, we have the Bible. We don't need science. That wasn't their attitude. That wasn't the attitude that was birthed there. I wanna read to you another quote from Rodney Stark. He said, in addition to seeing it as the duty of theologians to seek to understand God's will, the weight of opinion in the early and medieval church was that there was also a duty to understand the better to marvel at God's handiwork. What's he saying? Just like it was a responsibility of theologians to mine out scripture, to be able to understand God and the glory of God, there was also a call, a mandate on the people of God to dive into science, to explore creation, to better worship God as they began to see the forces and the way and the beauty of creation. It's amazing. Now you might be like, well, maybe that was kind of the the origin. Maybe that got him going, but surely like it died off after that. Well, interestingly enough, Geneva, Switzerland, which I did a case study on last fall in a message called Transform People, Transform Cities. And I talked about how the gospel transformed Geneva. One of the areas that it brought about transformation under the leaders of the Reformation and the following pastors was in the area of science. They embraced science and scientific inquiry so much shaped by this worldview that Thomas Jefferson in the 1700s said Geneva was the most scientifically modern, most scientifically advanced city in all of Europe. That the faith that they had, the worldview that they had motivated them to press forward into science for the glory of God. Now, you fast forward a little bit, uh, the Puritans. Surely, if anybody's gonna shut down science, it's the Puritans. Heard about those guys. They're strict, right? Surely, they would kind of squelch that, you know, scientific inquiry. Interestingly enough, Puritan leaders like Increase Mather, Cotton Mather, Jonathan Edwards were leaders in New England in their day in promoting the field of science as a way to glorify God and as a way to love their neighbor. In fact, when a smallpox epidemic swept through some of the cities, it was increased Mather and Cotton Mather uh, going forward to the community saying, hey, we need to embrace scientific inquiry to stop this outbreak, this epidemic. It was so controversial, their stance to push forward in this, that uh, that there was a bomb planted in their home, right? And so what you see is that science was cultivated and nurtured through a biblical worldview, that Christians, that people of faith, that we're not called to be fearful of, oh man, what science gonna figure out next? Oh gosh, I better retreat over here. But no, motivated by the glory of God and God as creator, that Christians have been birthed to run into the fields of science for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And I just wanna say, there's some of you in here that have this wiring for science that you shut down because you haven't known how it intersected with your faith. 
And I believe God is releasing you right now into who you're made to be. And we need you to express the glory of God as you run into the field that you are called to. So let's fast forward. Uh, next question then. Okay, well, you know, that's Puritan days. That's kind of back there a little bit. Today, surely you can't be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold Christian beliefs. Now, granted, I, you don't have to be a Christian to be a scientist. That's not what's being said here. But there is a thought or a line of thought that you can't be an intellectual. You can't be a real scientist and hold Christian beliefs. Well, let's go to the data. Let's go to the facts. The Nobel Prize uh, is an annual international prize awarded starting in 1901 for achievements in physics, chemistry, physiology, medicine, literature, and peace. So largely scientific disciplines. Uh, researchers studied Nobel Prizes between 1901 and the year 2000. And in that 100-year, 99-year period, Christians won a total of 72.5% of the Nobel Prizes in chemistry, 65.3% of the Nobel Prizes in physics, and 62% of the Nobel Prizes in medicine, right? Christian population around the world is about 33%. So what you see here are these very high percentages of leading thinkers in science, like present day, that also have a deep faith in Christ and in Christian thought and theology. So far from the idea that you can't be an intellectual and also be a scientist, what we see I mean, you can't be an intellectual and also be a Christian. Maybe Christianity is anti-intellectual. What we see in the data is that that's anything but the truth. Kind of next question then. Well, isn't science all we need for life? Like I'm a scientist. I don't need faith in God. I have explanation, right? Well, I don't think it's that easy. Sir Peter Brian Medawar, who is the father of organ transplants, and won a Nobel Prize in the field of medicine, said this. He said, it's so easy to see the limits of science. Interesting. A leading scientist saying, hey, science has limits. It's not the one operating system for all of life. It says it cannot answer the questions of a child. Where am I coming from? What is the meaning of life? Where am I going to? We need to go outside science for answers to such questions, Right? So though we appreciate science and it has great value, here's a scientist saying, well, there are things that science cannot speak into, that we need to go outside of there to really be able to speak about that. Martin Luther King Jr. articulated it this way, our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. We have guided missiles and misguided men. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. What's King saying? He said, hey, we can use science to figure out how to do guided missiles and these weapons of war. But while science can lead us there, we can be misguided men and women. And what do we do with that technology, with that weaponry, right? And we need religion. We need faith to speak into that sphere to shape us. We can, be, uh, we can have guided missiles, but misguided men. Okay, so back to Luke, and we're closing here. Back to Luke. Okay, so I see, Zach, that you're saying that Christianity and science aren't mutually exclusive, that they, they even in history have been nurtured by one another, 
right? But what about miracles? That's where we got started. We've got angels visiting people, healings, dead people being raised. What about miracles? Well, interestingly enough, in 1914, there was a study of leading scientists in America on this particular issue. They were asked, uh, did they believe in a God to whom one may pray in the expectation of receiving an answer? And by answer, meaning more than the subjective psychological effective prayer. What they're saying is, is a God out there that you could pray to and that he would answer in a way that's more than, well, I prayed, now I feel peace. Or I prayed and now I just, I'm not gonna worry about it. But in a way where there would be answers, like things happening. Now the scientists studied 41 and a half percent in 1914 said, yes, they believed in a God like that. These weren't armchair scientists. These are leading scientists in America. Almost 100 years later, 1996, the study was repeated and the results were unchanged. That's right around in that 40 of leading scientists in America also believe, alongside that scientific belief, believe in a God who answers prayer in remarkable ways. Speaking about the miracles that we see in the Gospels, I wanna read you as we close this quote from Dr. Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian. He said this, we modern people think of miracles as a suspension of natural order but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of natural order. Think about that. We think about, man, the the rule is you get cancer and then you die. And a miracle would be this law is somehow supernaturally broken and you get cancer and you get healed and you live. Like natural order broken for a new order. What Keller is saying is when we look at the miracles in Jesus' life, they're not that. They're not the suspension of natural order but they're the restoration of natural order. They're not a one-time rule being broken, but it's Jesus putting the world back rightly. Let's read on. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, to have hunger, to have death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where the world is wrong and to heal where the world is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but they're also a wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but they're a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. That's just, man, that'll shut down church right there. Come on, that's awesome. So what's he saying? As we dive into the gospel of Luke, we can dive in as scientific people with an openness and a belief in God stepping in in Jesus to restore natural order. And that the way that Jesus uses power is a reflection of what he's doing in redeeming all things. And our hearts can be awakened to the world that we all want, that it's coming. And that's exciting. And I wanna invite you to stand. We're gonna close with that. There's not much we can do besides just worship Jesus after that. Jesus, we love you. It's amazing, God, the beauty uh, that you have created the world and everything in it with. Thank you, God, for the gift of science by which we can know and understand creation. And thank you, God, for the gift of Jesus that we can see the way you use power and that the way you use power is to restore 
a broken world and that you're leading us into a new world, the world we've all longed for, where, he, where death and sickness and hunger are no for our community. And it's important for our community. And it's important for for our community. And it's important 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 for